As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. What we've tried to do is inform you about the commodity crisis you're living out front first was Francisco Blanche, and I remember the day a number of quarters ago where he shocked the world over $100 a barrel. He's provided real intellectual leadership on trying to figure out where the next gallon of gas is going to be priced. Francisco, thank you for joining this morning. I want to go to the heart of your note, Francisco. You've got a bias upward in price, and you are looking at the price responsiveness, the price elasticity of demand. Are we going to see demand destruction as oil moves up, or is it inelastic? Uh, look, Tom, I mean, high prices always fix high prices. So we are certainly going to see some demand destruction. One of the challenges, and you may remember the, the, this from back, back in 08 when we were talking about these issues, is that as prices go up, governments tend to use uh, fuel subsidies as a tool to keep uh, uh, people happy. So we are seeing uh, a curtailment of, of fuel taxes across much of Europe. We've also seen some U.S. states doing the same thing, uh, Mexico, uh, many emerging markets. So as prices go up, governments try to reduce that elasticity, and they don't let prices work very much. And, and therefore, you end up getting bigger movements on the wholesale market, uh, which is kind of what we've right. seen so far. Um, so that's being a big issue. And the other big issue, obviously, is that we, we have, as I like to say, the mother Russia of full supply shocks. Uh, it's just a very, very big right. supply shock. Uh, Francisco, I got to go here because Brian Moynihan in Davos was exceptionally positive on the resiliency of the American consumer. Do you care about the price elasticity and demand destruction as gasoline goes to $7 a gallon? I, I, I do care, but but I will say that if you look across the world, and this is probably one of the, one of the, the our most popular uh, pieces of work, which is the, the energy share uh, of, of GDP uh, across the world is actually quite high. We're almost back to the run revolution levels for the entire planet in terms of the, the amount of income that we spend in our energy. I'm talking about quantities of oil, gas, and coal multiplied by the price and divided by a nominal GDP. But in the U.S., you have a twist. And the twist is that you haven't had the global gas and power crisis that we've seen in Europe, that we've seen in Asia. So the U.S. is not enduring uh, record high natural gas or power prices. And I know Henry helps up. But uh, at the end of the day, the U.S. is not facing the same kind of energy prices in aggregate that the rest of the world's uh, suffering from. So I think the U.S. is a lot less exposed. Uh, plus, also remember, 
um, the dollar is very, very strong. So that means uh, America has been insulated also more so than other countries um, that are facing this incredibly uh, strong dollar and strong commodity prices. And perhaps the third fact here is that uh, um, the U.S. Is, is energy independent on its path to become energy dominant, uh, which, which in my mind uh, also shields uh, the, the U.S. from the vagaries of, of global energy prices. So, so I think, yes, we're going to see recessions, but the question is where and when. And the U.S. is probably, in my mind, uh, at, at the bottom of the list in terms of the countries that will be impacted by this uh, skyrocketing energy prices. So, Francisco, there's a lot to unpack there. I want to just first get your sense of how close we are to a full-blown, as you call it, 1980s-style oil crisis. Right. We're, we're not that far. I mean, I think we've seen the global gas and power crisis already uh, in the past 12 months. It started with thermal coal in China. I remember uh, the most expensive energy commodity ain't oil. It's really been uh, uh, thermal coal and, and natural gas. Uh, we are at $400 a ton of thermal coal. That's twice the level of what we saw back in the financial crisis in 08 when oil went to $147 a barrel. We, again, $400 a ton. That's about $100 per barrel of oil equivalent. Uh, so oil at $110, $115 ain't expensive when coal's almost the same price level. Um, and then natural gas has also been at record levels in Europe. Uh, we've seen nearly $500 a barrel of natural gas prices, about uh, 80 bucks an MMBTU at the highest back in March. So, so that's what the real issue is. Oil is, uh, is yet not in crisis. It could go into a crisis though. And I think, I think that's the real problem here with, with the way that sanctions may be implemented, how much Russian supply do we end up losing, and how, how can that impact uh, the, the, uh, the, the supply-demand balances here? That's what I'm worried about. Francisco, I'd love some real-time analysis from you on the headlines we're getting from OPEC+. Plus. Delegates indicating that they could be discussing an additional 600,000 barrels a day against the scheduled 430,000. Also, some indication they might decide today on July and August hikes. Francisco, I'll tell you what the market's doing off the back of this. It's a raising losses. Crude's down about six-tenths of 1%. WTI back to 114.50. What's your read on those kind of headlines? Well, my, my read is that uh, OPEC, uh, OPEC Plus collectively does not want to be blamed for uh, oil prices skyrocketing here on the back of the uh, European sanctions on Russia. So they're trying to uh, increase product, uh, production and mitigate the upward price pressures. But remember... One of the biggest challenges that OPEC has in this market is that it doesn't have a spare refining capacity. Russia is not only the world's second largest crude oil exporter, it's also the second largest refined petroleum product exporter. And 40% of the diesel that goes into the ICE contract, into the gas oil contract, most important diesel contract in the world, ICE gas oil, is actually Russian. So... Uh, you're taking a lot of supply out of out of a very tight market, and 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 unfortunately, uh, when you don't have the refining capacity available, and Europe sanctioned both crude and petroleum products, um, there's not that much that OPEC can do. They can try to keep a lid on crude oil, but that's not necessarily going to help um, the price of diesel, the price of gasoline, which is ultimately what people buy at the pump. Well, Francisco, just a final word from you then on that topic. OPEC can't do anything seemingly to influence the price of things at the gas, according to what you just said, because of refining capacity. Where does it leave the administration here in the United States as the president, according to our reporting, gears up for a meeting with a crown prince? What can the president do here in America? Well, look, I mean, I think, I think we continue to do what, what we've seen, uh, release a little bit of SBR. Uh, the SBR has some barrels of, of petroleum product available, which are, are being, uh, being released into the market. 
I think I think the challenge is uh, honestly is that that we are uh, uh, we are tight on every front. Uh, commercial inventories are very low as our government inventories because we're growing them quickly. So I think I think perhaps uh, you know we should be started thinking about uh, demand rationing measures. Uh, maybe uh, stop subsidizing fuels, uh, but more importantly, maybe think about uh, limiting uh, speed on highways and, and doing things that actually. You think, Francisco, uh, that's where this could go in this country? Demand rationing. Uh, well, maybe maybe not in the U.S. Maybe you have enough capacity in the U.S., but certainly other parts of the world, I think, are going to have to end up seeing some demand rationing. Um, yeah, I, th- I think so. I think we're going into demand rationing mode uh, on the back of, of, of these measures against Russia. Well, Francisco, great to catch up. A longer conversation needs to be had. Francisco Blanchester yes. of Bank of America. Truly to celebrate for Bloomberg's surveillance, and we do this, of course, with uh, Ms. Sandberg out the door. It, Facebook, I refuse, David, to call it Meta. David Kirkpatrick joins us live in our studios here in New York. And you were with me the day of the Facebook IPO with Paul Kodrowski, and you had truly one of the greatest calls in the history of surveillance. <laughs> Everybody was in a complete lather about this future of this clown out of a dorm room in Harvard. And you said, would everybody calm down? I wrote the Facebook effect, and this kid will make it. They've done very well, haven't <laughs> They've they? done, on balance, you can hardly blame, say they haven't done beautifully. I right. mean, what, $112 billion in revenue last year, something like that. Page 159, the Facebook effect, the CEO. How did they meet? How did Zuckerberg choose Sandberg, or did she choose herself? <laughs> No, I don't think she did choose herself. And thank you for having me, Tom. Uh, they met at a party that Dan Rosenzweig was hosting uh, in, in, out in Silicon Valley. He was at Yahoo at the time. Um, and Zuckerberg pulled her aside, and, and it was sort of like riveted. She was riveted by that. And then um, Roger McNamee, ironically, who's become a massive Facebook critic, really helped broker their relationship because he was a longtime friend of Cheryl's and advised Mark that she would be a really great uh, person to do it and, Interesting. and helped convince her that she should consider it seriously. David, you know, I was a big fan of the hiring of Sheryl Sandberg because, you know, I viewed Facebook at its basis just simply an advertising company. And they didn't really have a big time advertising person there. Someone who could sit down with the likes of Coca-Cola and Procter & Gamble, Sheryl certainly could. Yes. And given all that, and we've got $120 billion of revenue. So, I mean, she certainly did her job extraordinarily well. What's her legacy? Well, her legacy is an extraordinary advertising business, which she built from really literally almost nothing to become the clear number two to Google as the dominant advertising player in the world uh, at extraordinary profitability. I mean, more profitability per dollar of revenue during most of its history than Google. So, you know, and she also built that business largely, too. So, you know, she is kind of the primary architect of the advertising-based business model of the Internet. You could even go that far. And that, but that is a mixed legacy because let's face it, as Roger McNamee, who I just mentioned, would be the first to tell you, ad-based Internet is intrinsically a dangerous medium because of the tendency of platforms to want to put anything into it that generates page views and eyeballs. And that has in turn led to extraordinary disinformation flows, uh, anti-democratic behavior, hate speech, which is all hypnotic to the user and keeps them engaged and turning, you know, clicking, clicking, clicking. But 
in the end, so that's a, it's a real yin and yang story with, with Sheryl Sandberg. So I guess one of the questions I think we're all going to be asking for many years is what is her responsibility in that aspect of the growth of Facebook vis-a-vis Mark Zuckerberg, who one could argue not just as the controlling shareholder, he is the autocrat of yeah, Facebook. Yeah, I, I, I love calling him the autocrat of Facebook because it absolutely is true. I think that's where it's harder to say because even though there have been some reports, uh, including in uh, the book... Uh, 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 the ugly truth that came out last year uh, that she really did try to push back okay. against uh, some of Zuckerberg's decisions regarding speech and, and how Facebook ought to be governed. You know, it. she really clearly didn't do enough. She also really has a tendency whenever she's in public to sound ridiculously Pollyanna-ish and not to acknowledge, no. <laughs> not to acknowledge any potential problems, which is really, I think, tragic because if she had been more honest with the public, at least people might have forgiven the right. company a little bit. But we, we cannot right. forgive them because they have caused serious harm to society. Your book ends with Zuckerberg bedazzled at the end of a driveway, almost in shock over the initial <laughs> I success forgot that. I haven't of read Facebook. That I read your book like once a month Tom, just to you are, keep you're, my, you're my, my biggest tech bearings. reader. I love that. Thank okay, you. Okay, but now what? What kind of CEO does Mr. Zuckerberg, does he have a gray hair yet? I don't know. Okay, I, what kind of CEO does he need? Well, does he need? Yeah. You mean instead of himself? Yes. You think he should hire somebody else? No, he's, he can do all the, or COO, the tycoon. Another COO, yeah. Well, okay. He needs somebody to run the company. I am yes. worried that he, with Cheryl leaving, he has nobody really to push back exactly. against Exactly. So who's I mean, the And person? she pushed back ineffectively, it would be my guess. But the fact is, he is an autocrat with all power who has bad judgment. Uh, he's a brilliant engineer, a brilliant product strategist, but he doesn't understand how to consider the, the impact of his company in society nearly enough. And he needs somebody who really, you know, when they hired Nick Clegg, oh, before, before that, I used to say, Nick I wrote Clegg? a piece once, I wrote a, no, no, Nick Clegg's not going to be the CEO, one of the, or, or COO, but I argued in a piece before that happened that they should hire Barack Obama. The scale uh-huh. of Facebook's challenge is so huge, and their role in society in every country in the world is so massive. They need the most sophisticated political, sociological, you know, humane judgment. Okay, so that's at, a chairman the guy. They don't have that. What? That's a ch- that's a chairman position. It could be. Could but be. every time anybody on the board starts to push back against Zuckerberg, he clears them okay. off the board. Where have you been? How come you haven't been in to talk to us? Well, you haven't asked yeah. me, man. Yeah, it's just <laughs> you know, a pandemic. I was working <laughs> what do, from when home. When do we like get every... a new book out? Not the Facebook effect, but the the, the, the Elon effect. Uh, no, I'm not writing that. Uh, thank <laughs> no, you, Tom. I, when I, do we get a new book out? I don't You're know. Slacking I'm, off. I, don't, 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 don't pressure me. I got a company to run. I run Techonomy. I'm really enjoying that. Actually. And how's that doing coming out of the pandemic? Seriously. Well, it's doing well. We're, we're actually, you know, we're really working hard on climate. That's our big issue now, climate tech. And we had a Techonomy Climate Conference in March in Mountain View, which was extraordinarily successful. We just had two Techonomy Climate events in Davos right. last week. And I feel like this is the issue that I have to work on. So I honestly care about that more than Facebook's crimes. Do tech guys, flying around, do tech guys flying around in their Gulf streams care about the energy crisis and they, climate? you got to be They kidding. pretend to, but they don't care. It's just no. Anybody who flies in a 
Gulf Stream doesn't care about the climate. I think that, now, I'm, I hate to say oh. it, but I wouldn't be surprised if yeah, I'm in Zurich, and they're too. lined up like 42, I counted 42 Gulf Streams. Including and, the surveillance and, Gulf Stream, of course. No, Francine had. Okay, okay. <laughs> you didn't have your own, though, Tom. No, no, we share it. We yeah. share it. And they wouldn't let me upgrade to the four. I've got the three. It's a little old, and I can't stand up. I feel okay. guilty when I fly across the Atlantic for any oh, reason. I mean, oh, stop. Stop no, with this shame this is, stuff of flying. I, I don't feel that guilty not to do it, but the reality is... We have to reconsider our behavior, and okay. society has to reconsider its behavior. The bad news is we're out of time. David Kirkpatrick, thank you so <laughs> much. Read his book, folks. It's dated, but fresh as all get out. <laughs> Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Kathy Jones joins us now, Chief Fixed Income Strategist at the Schwab Center for Financial Research. Kathy, 120 on a German 10-year this morning. For all this talk of peak inflation, peak yields here stateside, on the other side of the Atlantic, can you make that call yet? Yeah, I don't think we're quite there, uh, just because Europe has been lagging the U.S. in terms of this cycle. Uh, but I don't think they're far behind either. Uh, you know, we're starting to see that catch up. We're starting to see the market build in the expectation for a tighter policy in Europe. So I, don't, I think they're lagging us, but I don't think we're quite there yet. Kathy, the, the yields that we see are, are, are a complete mystery out the third quarter. How, what does your top end look like? How far up? Do you frame yields could go to? So when we're looking at the short end, you know, we're still looking at the Fed tightening uh, 50 basis points the next two meetings and probably then switching to about quarter point increases in the fall. Uh, and we see them topping out, you know, probably in that two and three quarters area. Uh, we're, we're a little bit under sort of the consensus and what's built into the market. When we look out to the 10 year, our, our expectation is the upper end is that three to three and a quarter area. You know, as you wow. get into a tightening cycle, yields converge um, across the curve. We're already seeing a little bit of inversion from fives to tens. So we think three to three and a quarter is the upper end of what we're going to see. Kathy, we're talking this morning about the two-sided argument within each of these houses at banks and beyond of whether we're too gloomy or whether we're too optimistic. And the data is coming out strong. Does this mean that the Fed has to go much harder? That basically, yes, you could take that three and three and a quarter percent 10-year yield, but the path to get there is one paved by a Fed that essentially has to end this cycle, has to create a downturn. 
Yeah, it, it certainly is the way that, um, you know, they're talking right now and have to take them seriously. It's pretty much across the board from daily to Bullard, you're hearing the need for tighter policy. And I think that um, this, this cycle reminds me of the early 80s. Um, you know, Tom might remember this. But, uh, you know, you had high inflation, relatively healthy economy, and the idea was just to, you know, really get that inflation down. And uh, Volcker at the time came in and just jacked up rates until we tipped into a recession. We had two back-to-back very sharp recessions. So that's kind of the risk, I think, if the Fed goes really hard here. But that certainly sounds like the intention that they have. Kathy, how achievable? Are these forecasts over at the Federal Reserve? Unemployment at 3.5% this year, 3.5% next year, 3.6% the year after that. How achievable is that? I'd say that's aspirational. Um, <laughs> it would be <laughs> surprising to me if you could have the kind of monetary policy we're getting with higher rates and uh, QT along with a global tightening cycle and still keep unemployment near three and a half percent. Do you think they should rename the summary of economic projections Federal Reserve aspirations? <laughs> I think so. You know, they're never going to forecast failure, right? So, um, so true. They, they, have to, they, they have to forecast, you know, what they hope happens. Kathy, thank you. Kathy Jones at a Swab Sense for Financial Research. Joining us right now, Megan Green, Global Chief Economist at Kroll Institute and Senior Fellow, Harvard Kennedy School. And very importantly, uh, Dr. Green, is the idea here of using the Queen's English. And you do that, Megan, with the word awkward. You say our awkward response to inflation on a global basis is really interesting. How awkward is the Federal Reserve and Chairman Powell right now? Well, the Fed's in a tough spot, right? You know, we're facing indicators suggesting that growth is really slowing. At the same time, inflation is way too high by the Fed standards, by everyone's standards. And so the Fed is stuck knowing that a lot of the drivers of inflation are are supply side and that the Fed can't really do much about it. So the Fed's having to hike rates uh, and will hike rates to neutral uh, very quickly, which is around two and a half percent. There's a ways to go before the end of the year. And then I think the Fed's really stuck. They're going to pause, recognize that, you know, another 200 basis points in hikes is a lot for the economy to absorb in a short period of time and see where the data is. So I think it's absolute consensus that the Fed, they'll just go straight to neutral. And then I think they're going to wait and see, as the rest of us will have to as well. I have to say, in all of my conversations with investors, there's been a real shift in focus away from just talking about inflation to just talking about growth over the past two weeks. The concerns about a recession are, are really intense among investors and, and actually, I think, premature. I don't think we're going into recession in the next 12 months. It's the 12 months after that that I'm worried about. Megan, we sense the same thing. Overwhelmingly, the focus is on some of the output data. What did you make of the ISM for manufacturing yesterday? Because not exactly in line with what we've seen from some of the regional Fed indicators. Yeah, and this is happening. I had an investor sort of rant at me uh, yesterday that all the data is contradictory and they don't know what to what signal to read out of the noise. And I, I think we're all feeling that way. But I think the ISM data was fairly positive, actually. It surprised me on the upside and suggests that we're not careening towards a recession. Look, uh, you know, the consumer accounts for 70% of our growth in the U.S. And consumer balance sheets are looking pretty healthy in aggregate. Of course, the bottom quartile by income doesn't look that great. They've burned through their cash buffer. Uh, but the rest of Americans have a big cash cushion. Companies also have a huge cash, 
cash position built up. So even as rates go up in earnings, the risk is all on the downside. It's going to take a while to burn through all of that cash before we really start to see individuals and companies retrench. And, and that is what drives us into recession. Megan. It's also worth pointing out with the jobs data coming up on Friday, we have 11 and a half million unfilled jobs. A tick up in unemployment is the best indicator of a recession. I just don't see unemployment ticking up significantly anytime soon, given how many unfilled jobs there are. Megan, given all of this, why won't the Fed be more aggressive than people think? Why do they why will they potentially be more patient and hike rates enough and then pause? Uh, You know, I think that the Fed knows that their history in terms of engineering a soft landing is pretty poor. And in the past, every time they have actually engineered a soft landing, uh, unemployment was actually much higher when they started. So it's much more likely that unemployment will tick up this time around, just given that it's around three and a half percent. It's it's near historic lows, um, as opposed to in the past where unemployment was already higher. Um, they, they don't want to cause a recession. And that's why they're fine going to neutral. That's just taking their foot off the gas pedal a bit. But once they get to neutral and have to get to, into actual significant tightening, I think they're going to be a lot more cautious. Megan Green of the Crawl Institute. Megan, thank you. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher-level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.